You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. How to Set and Apply a Central Purpose by Jean Maroney. Our topic today is how to set and apply a central purpose. Your central purpose is your top productive goal. It's stylized and utterly selfish, not just the name of your profession. One lawyer might have as her central purpose to defend companies against frivolous lawsuits. Another one might want to get innocent people out of jail. If the lawyer works at the Institute for Justice, his central purpose might be to change the law of the land so so that the law protects individual rights. A central purpose is important to adults, whether you are starting out, mid-career, or retired. Doesn't matter what age you are, you need a central purpose. If you want to lead a happy, selfish life, you need to integrate your values. You do this through a properly set and pursued central purpose. I grasped this about 10 years ago when I was frustrated with my own progress on my own career. I had a central purpose, which I discovered was not formulated appropriately. At that time, my goal was to undo the damage to adult minds that had been wrought by progressive education. I actually thought of it as undo the, uh, undo the damage of the Comprachicos, but I don't assume that everybody here knows what I mean by that. I mean the article that Ayn Rand wrote on that topic. But even though I had this great central purpose, I was conflicted. Part of my effort was devoted to discovering methods, part of it to teaching the methods for how to retrain your mind, part of it to build a business to actually get people who wanted to have their minds retrained. But these three undertakings often conflicted. I often felt pulled, I would wind up doing one and the other two would drop away. Obviously, my value hierarchy was not fully integrated. I actually took on a campaign to try to integrate my values, and in the course of that, I discovered I needed a slightly different central purpose. I'll tell you what that is later, but this is the promise. Done right, a central purpose provides three psychological benefits. It simplifies everyday decision-making by clarifying your top priority and setting a standard for judging all of the lesser ones. It connects mundane actions to a selfish end, thereby making it meaningful and motivating. You actually want to do those little tasks. And third, it ensures that you make visible progress across the years of your life, rather than falling into a rut or burning out. These three benefits are crucial. Clear priorities on a daily basis, meaning and motivation even on mundane tasks, and a sense of progress. They are essential to a happy life, essential contributions to a happy life. Now, so far, you've only got my assertion. In our time together, I aim to validate what I've just said. First, I will explain exactly what a central purpose is so that you can see how it can provide these benefits. 
Then I will answer the most common question about a central purpose, which is why must it be a productive goal? Here's a hint. Only a productive goal actually gets these benefits. And then finally, I'll describe to you three methods that you can use to identify your own central purpose so that you can get these kinds of benefits in your case. By then, I think you'll see both the practical and emotional re rewards of defining and implementing a central purpose for yourself. Everybody in the right room? Okay. Good. Or at the right camera. I've got a lot of people who are online here, so welcome also to the room. To begin, what exactly is a central purpose? Let's ask Leonard Peikoff. Quote, a central purpose is the long-range goal that constitutes the primary claimant on a man's time, energy, and resources. That's the definition he gives in Objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, OPAR, in the section on productiveness. Now, you may notice I said that your central purpose was your top productive goal, and the examples I gave you were of productive work, but that's not mentioned in Dr. Peikoff's definition. He gets to it two paragraphs later. Since we're celebrating OPAR, this is maybe a moment to stop and say how important this book is. Uh, I'll say for myself, I learned to think in essentials by studying OPAR in detail, paragraph by paragraph, section by section. I think it's the most clearly written book ever. The purpose of every sentence is transparent. You can see why he put it there. He connects every abstract idea to a specific example. Whenever he explains a deep principle, he then integrates that principle to every new point in the rest of the book. He said he did an entire editing pass where he just looked at every time the word and came up to see if he really needed both things, or three things if it was A and B and C. The result of this is that every word in that book is worthy of close study. So let's look at the key terms in his definition of a central purpose. A central purpose is the primary claimant on a man's time, energy, and resources. Primary claimant, what's that? Primary means first and fundamental. It means it's the first thing you do and it's at the base of all the rest. Claimant is a person, so this is analogous. Some, one who asserts a right or title. So when we say that a central purpose is the primary claimant on your time, energy, and resources, we're saying that it has a right to be attended to first. It should be the first thing you put on your schedule before you put other things on the calendar. It should be put on the schedule at a time when you're fresh, when you have energy. And if it needs other resources, it should get them too. You may need to invest in your education. Just with that, just with the two words, primary claimant, you can see how a central purpose guides you. 
because it is allotted your time and energy first, it necessarily constrains the other commitments that you make. Every other undertaking needs to be compatible with your putting time and energy on your central purpose. If it's not, it's not. Incidentally, note the precision of Dr. Peacock's formulation. He doesn't say that the central purpose does get top priority status. He says it should. It's the primary claimant. It's the thing that has a right to get this first uh, attention. Now, putting your central purpose first is necessary because it's a long-range goal. This is not something that is just about its being a central purpose. A long-range goal cannot be achieved without consistent action across months and years. It can't be achieved in one month in a burst of energy. It's bigger than that. You're going to need to put in this effort, sustain it across time. And you can't leave that to chance. How many of you have set a long-term goal, said, oh yeah, I'm going to do that when I have time? Did it happen? If you don't put a long-term goal into the plan, you don't, see the, you don't put in the time on a consistent enough basis. You need to make sure you work toward it on a daily or weekly basis, and to do that, you have to block it out first. And then you need to guard that time so that something doesn't take it over. I mean, for example, I'm essentially a writer. I need to schedule my writing time for the morning. If I don't schedule my writing time for the morning, if I try to do it in the afternoon, I can't write. I need to have my mind clear of other things. I can't have read email. I can't have 10 other issues on my mind. I need to be able to do that to concentrate. Because that is the primary claimant on my time, it gets on the schedule first. Everything else has to work around it. Now, because it's a significant productive commitment, your central purpose is often related to paying your bills. It's often the job that you get paid for. But that is not always true. So for example, an actor might have as his central purpose, say, let's take a really great central purpose for an actor to project the mix of heroism and anguish of a flawed character. Okay, that's what he's out to do, he wants to do that. He may not be able to support himself financially playing these parts, at least not early in his career. Acting would still be his central purpose, even though he might spend more time at his day job earning a living. But his day job would need to be chosen so that it was compatible with his central purpose. For example, he would likely need flexible hours to permit him to engage in acting lessons and auditions, and maybe even unpaid productions. Now, more than that, it's not just an issue of scheduling, right? If you know that this is your central purpose, you want to try to integrate it throughout your life. You want to try to move it forward. So ideally, an actor would find a way that he could integrate his day job with his acting goals. If he were a bartender, maybe he would spend his time at work studying people, noticing mannerisms, seeing 
the emotions on different people's faces. If he were in a customer service job, maybe he would play a different role every day, would practice acting at work. If he were a delivery driver, maybe he would rehearse his lines in the car between stops. There are many, many ways, if you have a long-range goal, there are many ways that you can find to get mileage on that goal in other things in your life. This is an example of how a central purpose informs mundane tasks and brings meaning to them. It doesn't happen by accident. You need to choose to connect these seemingly unrelated activities to your central purpose. But when you do it, it makes everything in your life more meaningful. It makes everything you do more significant. It adds a little joy to everything going on in your life. Just as an example of how this works, I knew a toy inventor who was fascinated by all manufactured objects. You get that? All manufactured objects, fascinated. Why? He was looking at how things were put together. Sometimes this gave him ideas for toys. Other times, he had an idea for a toy, and he needed to figure out how it would be put together. So this is a man who could not be bored in any place, as long as there were manufactured objects around. He was interested in manufactured objects. No boredom. This is great. This is the way to live. So that's the primary claimant. Primary claimant is about making this the priority. You need to choose to do that. Let's turn to another key term in Leonard Peikoff's definition. Goal. Central purpose is a goal. What's a goal? It's a result that you choose to achieve. It's a result that you choose to achieve. You decide you are going to take the effort to make this result happen. As a goal, it has an objective completion point or points built into it. Like the actor, every time he plays a role, he has a completion point. He has portrayed the heroic character with his anguish. A goal has a finish line. You can tell when you've completed it. So this is important in how you formulate your central purpose. A central purpose is not something you do, it, excuse me, I said that backwards. A central purpose is something you do or create. It's not something you are. Be a lawyer or be an engineer is not a central purpose. Or at least it's a very poorly formulated central purpose. If you think your profession is your central purpose, you probably have a kind of overall general direction for what you want to do, but you haven't made your actual goal explicit. And that really matters. If you want to get the benefit of this prioritization and this meaning in your life, you need to really have your purpose specific. It needs to be a highly personal, selfish goal. Highly personal, selfish goal. You know, I gave a few examples of this for how different lawyers might have different central purposes. Here are some different central purposes that some software engineers might have, just to give you the idea of how 
it's really going to be tailored to an individual interest. So one software engineer might have as his central purpose to make software easier to maintain and upgrade. He gets disgusted by buggy software, and he's on a campaign to make it easy to maintain and upgrade. Okay. Another might actually just have a central purpose of solving hard problems. Doesn't actually care what the problems are. But given the hardest problem, that is interesting, figuring out how to solve it, creating new knowledge about how to solve this kind of problem, that's what he likes to do. Another might be more motivated by just the mission of the company that he works for. So for example, a software engineer that worked at a bank might be, have as his central purpose to develop ways to make software hack-proof. Wants to protect the financial industry, make that software hack-proof. Now, this is not a coincidence if your central purpose is connected to the company you work at. In fact, it's one of the jobs of a leader in business to help the team members connect the mission of the company to their own purposes. You want to have all of those selfish purposes aligned and contributing to the company's purpose, and you want it to be selfish across the board. Because it's the selfishness of the goal, it's the personal significance of the goal that gives each person the motivation to be ambitious, to go and do the best work possible. It's that personal significance that trans and, and that concrete goal, where you really know what you're after, that transforms a generic career into a central purpose. Now, as we're talking about goals, I just feel I need to mention in passing, I have snuck in some general criteria for goal setting here. I could say I could give an hour on goals, but that is not our purpose. But I just want to say that a goal needs to be formulated in terms of gaining values, not avoiding threats. Uh, some of you were here a couple years ago when I did a talk on motivation by love versus motivation by fear, and that's available from ARI. Very important to formulate all your goals in terms of gaining values as opposed to avoiding threats. Just to see, to concretize this, just consider someone who has as her central purpose raising her child, right, motherhood. Consider the difference between someone who formulates her central purpose as to create a safe place for her toddler to develop values as opposed to a mother who sees her purpose as, don't mess him up. Which one is going to succeed better? It's, now, they both have the same kind of de general desire. They want their child to thrive. But how you formulate your central purpose matters. It needs to actually focus your attention on a value. It needs to send you in a direction. Over the long term, you need positive guidance. An avoidance-based goal just doesn't give it to you. It only tells you when you failed. If you set an avoidance-based goal, a threat-based goal, the only thing you'll get is you'll find out when you failed. So think about this, right? The mother who's creating a place for her toddler to discover values. Every time the little toddler starts getting excited about a truck, I just met a toddler today who's very excited about trucks, or about dolls, or about anything, you'll wind up 
celebrating. As the mother, you would be celebrating, look, another value, my toddler. Look, my toddler's getting another value. You would see that you were succeeding in fostering this environment and creating an environment where your toddler can learn values. This would go on on a daily basis. Parents of the toddler I was talking to told me every night they talk about what the young child has done, which is a great celebration. What about the mother whose goal is to not mess him up? She's not going to get any feedback until she sees something messed up. How is she going to feel then? Pretty awful. So if you find that your purpose seems to be formed, formulated in terms of a threat, you need to find the values analog. So don't mess them up. Well, the main thing a child needs to develop at that time is values. So that's the positive you need to get that is, in fact, going to avoid that threat and also cause the child to flourish. I mean, that's, as I said, that's, a, that's another topic, but make sure that your central purpose is value-based. Now, there's another phrase in there, long range. Let's, let's get clear on long range. What makes a goal long range? This is the last term in the definition I want to explore. So the obvious question is, how long is long range? Should a central purpose, once you set it, set the direction of your life for the rest of your life? I mean, is that it? Oh my God, I'm going to decide now at 18 what I have to do when I'm 80? That's a lot of pressure. No, it doesn't. Now, it can. I mean, some people do have what is called a calling. Now, this is not a good word for this. It comes from the religious uh, meaning of it. Religious people who have a calling think that God told them. God put them on the planet to do this. For that specific purpose, and they dedicate themselves to it because, well, God said so. Well, I, I have a calling and it's got nothing to do with God. Um, I've actually had a calling ever since I grasped the damage done to me by progressive education. And, but it's entirely secular. And my purpose, in a certain sense, has not changed since I formulated it, you know, decades ago at this point. And I expect to keep working on it until I die. It's, uh, until I can't think, actually. Hopefully, those will be exactly the same time. But we'll see. <laughs> now, what do I mean when I say, I do, calling I think is a good word for it. I actually think I am the right, I, I happen to be, some of it's coincidence, I happen to be, have been born in the right place at the right time, to the right parents, and had the right education, and had the right problems, so that, and the right kind of ambition, and the right starting skill set, like engineering, turns out to have been very helpful for the work I do now. So that I'm like in a perfect position to do what it is that I'm trying to do. So it just, it feels like my skin. This is what I'm doing. This is me. I identify with it completely. And that, I'll tell you, it's wonderful when you have that. It, I mean, you become very passionate, and it's fun. But not everyone has a calling. And if you don't have a calling, you should not feel bad about that. 
most people do not have a calling and you can have a completely effective central purpose without being on a mission uh, for the rest of your life. I would say that most people formulate a central purpose that is on the three to 10 year time range. I think you need at least three years to get this kind of integrating benefit, to really see the long range, to, to be able to see that things are adding up, that you can achieve things long range. On the other hand, after about 10 years, most people seem to need some kind of a shift. You know, the work that you've been doing becomes routine and you want to shift. I mean, I've seen speakers who's shifted from speakers to speaker coaching. Uh, I've seen, I mean, that's a very common thing to switch from doing to teaching. Or people will shift, uh, I'm thinking Tara Smith, I've seen her shift what her main focus is about every 10 years in her career. And that can happen very naturally. And that happens even if you have a calling. So if, you, if I look back, I, my central purpose really changed about every 10 years. First, it was how to discover how to retrain a mind. Then it was uh, to figure out how to teach people to do that. And then I figured out that really, in order to have my wor work make any impact, which I really wanted it to have, I needed to zero in on one challenge. So uh, at present, my central purpose is to teach adults how to think clearly and logically about value-laden issues so they can lead happy and productive lives. Now, Thinking clearly and logically about value-laden issues is not the only thing that needs to be remedied from a progressive education, but it's the one I'm focusing on for probably this 10-year block. And when I'm satisfied with what I've done on that, I'll probably go on. I'll probably turn to teaching rational communication or essentialization, instead of trying to do all of them, which is what I was doing earlier in my career. So the idea that your central purpose shifts, I think, is very normal. And I, a, a lot of people come to my thinking lab program to actually work on a central purpose. And sometimes they feel unearned guilt because they don't have a central purpose. But this is not something to feel guilty about. This is actually an opportunity. You get to see what the next part of your life is going to be. You get to choose what the next part of your life is going to be. And in particular, I want to mention this for retirees because we do have, a, you know, we tend to have a larger number of older people in our audience, like me. But anyway, so I have this particular eight-week program called Launch. And a lot of people come in that to figure out their central purpose. And the reason they come in is that after you retire, there can be something missing from your life. There's a risk of stagnating and losing the benefits that productive work brought to it. Of course, it's a little bit of a different issue when you're retired because you now have money. You don't have to make a living when you're retired. And this opens up possibilities that weren't really practical 10 years before. So like fiction writing, is, is, I mean, we have several people in the thinking lab doing fiction writing. And that's really exciting. The idea that when you retire, you could actually open up a new phase. But the other thing that happens when you retire is you may actually want to focus more on health, because of course you're older, and you may also want to 
have more time for leisure activities that you just really couldn't fit in when you were working very hard. So one way or another, if you're retired, you will probably, most people, not everybody, will put in less time in a week on your central purpose than you would have during your prime working years, where, you know, a normal work week is like 40 hours a week, but if, if you're retired, you almost certainly won't put in that much. The minimum that I recommend that you put in is 10 hours a week. I think that's enough investment in a long-range goal. If you put in 10 hours a week, you can actually see big things happening over time. You can, you can actually see some effect on your everyday actions. You can see that you're making progress. So you get that meaning, I think, if you just have something that is big enough that you want to devote 10 hours a week to it. So the situation for retirees is a little bit different, but uh, one thing stays the same. A retiree's central purpose still needs to concern productive work. They're retired, still needs to be productive work. Why is that? This is the most controversial thing in the discussion of central purpose among objectivists that I know about. Why can't a retiree have his central purpose be play golf or spend time with grandchildren? Why not? Similar com question comes up with younger people. Why not make re a recreation into your central purpose or relationships or your emotional well-being? This is really important. The reason these don't work as a central purpose is psychoepistemological. No other goal other than productive work provides the objectivity that you need to integrate your values across the years. A productive work actually serves a psychological purpose. What is productive work? How does it do this? Productive work is the creation of material values. The creation of material values for trade. Both parts of this are important. The creating is very important. You actually create something in the world. It has an existence apart from you. So for example, if you're an intellectual, this is the difference between setting your goal to know things versus to communicate what you know. It's not that knowledge isn't a value. Knowledge is a big value. But you have not created a material value until you put that knowledge into material form, into a talk, or into a book, or into a course. That's what put it, puts it out there where you can see it objectively. It's not just in your head. The trade element is also essential. You know, as a musician, you can practice all you want, but your music only becomes a material value when you perform it or record it so that someone else can hear it. That's what puts it out into the world. And that, having things you created out in the world, that has a huge psychological significance. That is essential to your psychological health. This is you seeing that you can do things in the world. It's the material values, the fact that it's material, that it's out in the world, that it exists, that permits it 
to meet this kind of a mental need. You know, when it's, I got several points here. First, the results are tangible. So you can see your own success. It means this is so important for developing psychologically. If you have objective success, there is an objective basis for you feeling satisfaction, right? Satisfaction is the feeling you have when you achieve a value. You had success, it would make sense that you feel satisfaction. It would make sense that you would feel pride. You did it, good for you, you should feel pride. That, I mean, it would make sense that you would feel that. It would make sense that you would feel confidence. Look, I can do these things, I've done them before. If you have the success and you don't feel these things, that is evidence of some old baggage. Old baggage can get in the way of you having the emotional rewards. I'll tell you, it's gonna get in the way of a lot of other emotional rewards too. But if you have made a material value, you actually have an objective way to say, oh, hey, this feeling I'm having, this feeling is non-objective because this is what I did. Hmm, isn't that interesting? This is the hook in for getting rid of old baggage, of old um, you know, emotional uh, disturbances of various kinds. You need to see that the emotion, what is objectively true, so you can see that the emotion doesn't make sense. And that's what gives you the starting point to try to untangle, where does that come from? That makes no sense. Let me find the contradiction or the conflict that underlies that, because that doesn't make any sense. And it puts you in a place of objectivity about your own mind. This is essential for improving your psychology. It's only an objective achievement in the world that can give you this kind of feedback from which you can then respond and improve yourself. Now, I learned this in part because I started with a discovery goal, right? I had basically, I wanted to know stuff. I wanted to understand how the mind works and how to retrain it. And after years of learning many, many things, I had very little to show for it and very little sense of progress. That's so unfair. You put in all this effort and you don't have the emotional rewards. Well, that's an, that's a, an alert. But this is inherent in having a learning goal. There aren't gonna be objective results from your learning goal. This is also because as soon as you learn one thing, you now have three new questions, right? As soon as you learn one thing, you know enough to ask new questions. So the knowledge of what you don't know necessarily grows faster than the knowledge of what you do know. Doesn't mean you shouldn't set a learning goal, but don't make it your central purpose. Now you can uh, establish, you, you can actually work to see that you've grown your knowledge, but it takes work. And in fact, this is one of the roles of teachers. Teachers create a supportive environment so that students can see objective progress as they're learning things, so that they can see objective growth in their knowledge. This is the huge value that a teacher brings to the student. If you're learning by yourself, if you don't have someone structuring this for you, then you need to develop some advanced introspective skills so that you can get that objectivity for yourself but, and make sure that you aren't just going in circles. 
But the truth is, how are you going to do that? You're going to find a way to make it objectively real. You're going to find a way to turn it into material values. I just can't stress this enough. A sense that you are making progress is a mental need. It is not okay if you think you're going in circles or not getting anywhere. You need to see progress. It is a red alert if you are not having a sense of progress. You need to see that you can do what you set out to do and for your top goal, you need to see this urgently. And that's why, practically speaking, any long-term goal requires interim objective results for you even to tell that you're making progress. Now, something I think will help make this clear is uh, a story of what happened in the software profession. In the early days of software, you know, when, I mean, computers were new, right, in the 60s, and then the 70s and 80s. This kind of pattern happened countless times at many companies. A team of programmers would set out to write a new program to perform some function. And the team would get together, they'd get the overall design, they'd figure out all the modules they needed, they'd send people off, they would code all the modules. Once all the modules were done, they'd say, well, we're 95% done. Ha! How many software engineers in the room? They had barely started. At this point, they would try to get all those modules to talk to each other. This is when they would discover fundamental design flaws, missing modules, overlooked compatibility problems. They would spend two or three times as much trying to get the stuff to talk together as they had to write it in the first place. And this happened across the industry. This is like, I mean, there were research papers on this. When I was in graduate school, uh, I remember reading about this and seeing it in real life, actually, because that's about when I was in school. So many projects were abandoned because they just, they actually weren't able to see the progress. They didn't have interim results. So the software industry solved this problem. It has evolved since then. Now, if you're writing software, what you do is you use a lean or an agile approach, which I like to think of as planned evolution. You make a mini version, like a stripped down, quick and dirty version of whatever it is you want that actually works, that you can see does like the basic job. And then you add bells and whistles, then you add get rid of the bugs, then you add functionality, and you grow it into the final program. This turns out to be a much more reliable way to make, a, you know, do a long-term project. And it means that you have evidence that you're making progress along the way. And it's, it was critical to the success of the software industry. It's critical to you in your own life. You need to be able to see your success. Until you see objective results, you have no idea how you're doing. So this is actually, I mean, as I said, I could talk about this a lot, but this is actually a whole issue about goal setting. To set goals so that you can see interim success, super, super important. You don't want to wait 10 years or even one year or even one month to decide you're off track. You should set goals so that you actually make progress on a daily or weekly basis. 
If you aren't seeing progress on your long-range goals on a daily or weekly basis, you need to change the way that you've planned the work for the goals. And I'm saying this is psychological feedback that's absolutely necessary. You know, the alternative, so um, the reason this is psychologically necessary is you can't act without motivation. And you certainly can't achieve a long-range goal without some kind of motivation. You need to pursue it in such a way that the process motivates future action. You need to set up a virtual cycle of success where the payoff from your initial effort actually motivates the next unit of effort. The alternative is you just work through sheer brute force willpower, and that always works in fits and starts. It's not sustainable. It will burn you out. Right. So I hope I've convinced you that a central purpose needs to be, uh, uh, it needs to be the creation of a material value. It needs to be productive work. Just a few words on why relationships and recreation and emotions don't work. First of all, relationships are inherently subjective. You know what a relationship is? It's what you think about the other person. There isn't some mystical spiritual thing that happens when you meet someone and now there's like this entity or relationship. No, it's your thoughts about the other person. Every one of you has a relationship with me because I've been talking with you and you've been listening to me. I don't actually know all of you. I don't have a relationship with every one of you. Not, you know, I don't know you. Some of you I do. But it's not, the relationship is in the person's mind who is thinking about the relationship. I got this idea from a woman named Brooke Castillo. Interesting idea. And very helpful when you're trying to sort out baggage about other people. So if you have, you can have a productive goal that involves other people. But it's not about the relationship. It's about what the action is that you do together. I have a service goal. My central purpose is basically a service, service people to teach people. It involves other people, but it is not about my relationship with them. It's about the material, material values that I create. Now, recreation is a somewhat different story. I think recreation is inherently short range and ephemeral. It's not long range. You need long range goal, recreation isn't that. I think when people want to make their central purpose long range, what they really want is they want uh, emotional well-being as their goal, and they think that recreation will be fun, and so they'll feel good. But you know, this is completely backwards. You cannot set your emotional well-being as a goal. It is, it makes, it's a total contradiction. Think about what the emotional system is. It's designed to alert you to values that are at stake right now. Meaning that the action you take right now will determine whether or not you gain and keep them. One kind of emotions alerts you to threats. Most of these feel bad. Fear, anger, anyone for guilt, frustration, you like those feelings? They feel bad, but you want to feel these feelings. You want to get the feedback. If you're feeling this, you want to understand why are you feeling this. If it's based on a fact, you want to go in and deal with it. If it's a mistake, you want to untangle that so you don't feel that unnecessary, uh, you know, un unearned guilt. So you shouldn't set as a goal to not feel those things. 
The other kind of alerts, uh, emotions alert you to values. And these generally feel good. Joy, pride, confidence, love, yes, yes, we're all for those, right? But not all do. Grief is an emotion that alerts you to values, but it also alerts you that there is some work that you need to do. You've lost a value. You need to think about what is that to you? How are you going to get that value? And the world has changed. You need to actually kind of embrace your life is not going to be the same. You lost a person, your life is not going to be the same anymore. That takes work. That means there's work to be done. That's what mourning is. So it makes no sense to prefer some emotions over others. All emotions are life-giving information. They are your early alert system that some value may be at stake. You do not want to pretend that some emotions are better than others. All emotions are important uh, information. And of course, I may not need to say this to this audience, but the deeper problem with setting emotional well-being as your goal is that you only get, you know, happiness, you know, joy, pride, confidence, you only get that from objective achievements. It's a total reversal of cause and effect. I want to say a few words about how you find and commit to a central purpose. You know, this is not a quick process. If you have a general direction, maybe you can do it in a month or two. If you don't have a direction, you should plan to take six months and work a little bit every day thinking about your values. There are really three things I recommend. I, you know, I'm just going to sketch this in. Values clarification. I recommend you spend a half an hour every day thinking about your values. If you're trying to, if you're trying to figure out your central purpose, it means you don't know your values well enough. You need to say, Think about three good things you did yesterday, and why did they make the list? Or think about, well, I have these three goals. What am I getting from these goals? What are the values? I did this for six months at the time, 10 years ago, when I clarified my central purpose. And it was, it just, you understand more richly what your value hierarchy is, what, what values you actually hold. Just one word of caution. In the course of figuring out why you want things, you may find hints of second-handedness, like, well, I want that because I want people to like me, or emotionalism, well, I want to feel good, or, oh, well, I have to, which is kind of an implicit duty premise. Keep thinking about them. If you have something that looks like an irrational reason, don't say, oh, well, that's wrong, and stop thinking about it. Say, hmm, this is probably a distorted attempt to achieve something rational. So like if you have a desire for, um, you want other people to like you, well maybe you actually want more uh, connection in your life. You actually want to have more friends in your life. That's completely rational. That's not second-handed. Or if you think you have to do something, why do you think you have to do it? There's probably some value involved there. Do the extra work to figure that out. Now I just want to say if, you know, this is a big topic. There's actually a freebie on my website that can help you with this. It's called the Thinking Direction Starter Kit. It's got uh, instruction on thinking on paper, which is the way that I recommend you do this. And it's also got a class called Emotions and Values 101 with a cheat sheet with a whole list of emotions and a whole list of values that can help you do this more quickly. It's not just sitting at your desk, though. You're going to need to develop the values, and you're going to need to commit to developing the values. You know, values 
are formed in your psychology by acting to gain and keep them, by connecting them with other things that are important, by really seeing how much they mean to you, by celebrating them. So when you're trying to work out a central purpose, you may run into a chicken and the egg problem. You may find, well, I don't have any strong values here. Okay, well then what you're gonna need to do is kind of deliberately take some action in a way that seems reasonable and build the value by means of that action. So what you do is you take action, see how you feel, introspect the emotions that come up after that. If they feels good, celebrate that. Really understand, why did you enjoy that so much? If not, why not? What were you missing? That's by taking action and experimentation, you can get clearer on your values and you can actually build values. Every time you act toward a value, you are making it stronger in your psychology. To commit to that, I recommend you also reject the status quo. You gotta have a reason to go and make this effort. I hope I've given you some reasons here in this, in this talk. Central purpose can help simplify your priorities. It can give meaning to your lesser tasks. It can help you see progress over your life. These are reasons why you might decide, hey, I'm gonna make a shift. Maybe like me, you were feeling conflict and you wanna have things be more integrated because I'll tell you, when you're in conflict, you're not productive. It's very frustrating. Part of, you need to see why you wanna make the change and you also need to reject the status quo. A central purpose takes effort. You need to say, okay, this is worth the effort. I'm gonna do it. Really, what you're saying, the value you're after here is yourself. I am gonna grow. I am grow, gonna grow into a person who has the values that makes my whole life happier. It's an investment in yourself. At a deep level, setting and applying a central purpose is how you take ownership of your life. This is a metaphysical perspective. I hope it can commit, help you commit to make changes. I think it's big enough to help you commit over the long term. You will see a payoff. When set and applied correctly, a central purpose plays a really important role in daily life. When you see how weekly actions are building to a longer term goal, you feel powerful, confident, you feel proud. When you are able to turn mundane activities into something meaningful, every day is brighter. When you sit down at your desk each morning, knowing your priorities, knowing what is number one, you have this clear, this clarity and direction and efficacy and confidence that's really irreplaceable. If you don't already have a central purpose, I hope I've inspired you to take the time to define one. And if you do, I hope this talk enables you to get even more joy out of it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. 
If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.